I'm still like emotionally pulling myself together from uh, that song, Peace Came Down. And I, was, I was thinking to myself like how lucky we are, how blessed we are as a church that we got this band with two million streams on Spotify and on iTunes and every week they put in countless hours and every week they come up here really believing that God's going to use change them to, uh, to bring change in the city. Can we thank the music team again? Yeah. I'm definitely standing up here clapping my chest as we speak because I tried doing this and that was really annoying for service. So what am I actually up here for? Oh, yeah. So when I listen to that Peace Came Down song, one of the big things I think about every time the band sings it is that sometimes, sometimes this world seems out of control. And I know I'm not telling you anything that you don't know. So many of us are in that right now. And then there's that hope and there's that peace that came down and there's that thought that in a world that seems out of control, there is a God who is completely in control. And I love that. And, 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 and all he asks of us is that we would follow him one next step at a time. And as we follow him one next step at a time, he changes us one next step at a time. He builds in hope. He builds in faith. He builds in love. He builds in joy. He builds in peace one next step at a time. So specifically, I want to draw to your attention again that we got a baptism coming up. I don't know where you are in your spiritual journey. Maybe you've been a Christian for like 15 years and you just, I, you just never took that next step. M might I suggest to you that this is a clear next step for every single person who has committed their lives to Jesus and when you take that next step, God's going uh, God, to change you. God's going to bring you to the place that you need to be as you follow him one next step at a time. And maybe for you, you're somebody that just last week committed your life to Jesus. That's awesome. And you might go, well, I have so much further to go. I think we all do, but that's not even the point. Like, our, our life isn't about, I'm great. Our life is about God's great. And he has a plan for you, and it, and it works one next step at a time. So please, if you haven't taken that step of getting baptized yet, text DUNK to 604-670-670. Do you know what? 3040, yeah. For about the first four weeks I said it, I said 4030, and everyone got mad at me. So um, so the guest speaker today is a man by the name of George Franco. Uh, the first time I met George was actually in the fall of 2014. And George came up uh, along with a, a man by the name of Joe Sangal, and the two of them came up to help us prepare as a church leadership for the Bold Campaign. It's amazing now, looking back at BOLD, uh, the, the BOLD campaign was just this sense that we felt as a leadership that it was time to begin to step towards uh, a, a moment where we would put a, a full-time home in the city. And it was based around that passage in Joshua 1 that says, Be bold and strong, banish fear and doubt, for remember the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And we really had this concept that it was time to put our foot down in the city and understand that the mission that God has given us is for today, it's for tomorrow, it's for next week, but it's for generations to come. But BOLD was a little bit difficult because it was a completely vision-based campaign. So it was like, we need to set ourselves up to build something somewhere sometime. Do I have a picture? No, here's the picture. Something, somewhere, sometime. That's it. And, and, and yet, as a church, we responded with incredible generosity. We took that step. And part of it is because of the preparation that we did with George Franco and, and Joe Sangle. Now, if you've ever met Joe Sangle, Joe Sangle is very energetic and boisterous and enthusiastic and quite loud, maybe the loudest person I've ever been around. And uh, so when Joe and George came up, uh, Joe, Joe would, would teach and, and he was real loud and about four or five times an hour he would yell, if I'm, if I'm lying, I'm dying. That's what he would always say, if I'm lying, I'm dying. And it was funny and it was awesome. And, and, and then George was there. George Franco wasn't as loud as Joe Sangle. And as far as I can remember, George never yelled, if, if I'm lying, I'm dying, like not even once, you know. But what happened is, as the week progressed, we got to know Joe real well, but every time George would present, or if there would be a time for a break, um, jo George would come over and he would just ask simple questions like, how are you? <laughs> like, how are you really doing? Do you have any questions? How can I pray for you? Because this must be intimidating, like for the first time in the history of your church to be moving towards having a home and, and uh, so later on in the week, I remember one night I was hanging around with Dave Poole. And I said, Dave, what do you, th what do you think of Joe and George? 
And Dave said, well, I got to tell you right off up front, man, I like, I like Joe Sangle. I like that guy. He's funny. He yells, if I'm lying, I'm dying all the time. And, and it's, it's just, it's cool. I said, man, I, I really like Joe too. He said, but I love George. I said, yes, yeah, so do I. And, and, and I think at the time we couldn't have articulated it, uh, it but, 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 but today I understand what it, what it was, is George Franco came here in the fall of 2014 as a divine appointment. Because the bold campaign has come and gone, and it's amazing to think now that what began is just we're going to build something somewhere sometime is now something is being built somewhere and the next 12 months, which is cool. But George has been a, along the journey every step. He's been up here several times with his incredible wife, uh, Tara, and Corinne and I have become real good friends with him. And truthfully, I've spent hours and hours on the phone with George. When I say hours and hours, I would say like dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of hours as he's down in North Carolina and I'm up here in British Columbia, Canada. He's one of my best friends. And we talk about, uh, we talk about being children of God. We talk about being pastors, about being husbands and being fathers. Years ago, there was this bracelet that people would wear sometimes. It would say, WWJD. You know, what would Jesus do? What I always ask myself as the lead pastor of this church is, how would Jesus lead? How would Jesus lead? And the first person I think of when I want to answer the question, how would Jesus lead? I think of George Franco. It's amazing to me today that for some of you, I'm introducing you to him because he's been such a huge part of this church behind the scenes in prayer and wisdom and counsel for so many years. I actually only see that increasing. But he's a friend all the way from Durham, North Carolina, a friend of mine, but also a friend of Southside Church. So the team's going to play a video to introduce the sermon. And when George comes up, I would ask that you would welcome him, that we would welcome him as the friend that he is. All right. What is up, Southside? Hey, I am so excited to be here, and um, and I love Mike. And the thing that I have grown to love over the last four or five years is coming here to Canada to Southside Church. It is the one thing when Mike called me uh, months and months ago and said, "Hey, would you have time to come up this summer and speak in one of our series?" I was like, "Yes, yes, I'll come." I was looking so looking forward to it, and uh, not because I like to speak. I am an executive pastor, and so I lead the staff most of the time. But I only speak to our church maybe three or four times a year, um, but I wanted to come and be here at Southside. There is something special that God is doing here at Southside Church, and it is the thing that I've looked forward to. My wife will tell you, we've been so excited to travel here. Um, on Saturday, we, or on Friday, we were traveling up. We, we woke up in the morning, and the first thing our phone alerted us and told us that our flight had been canceled, and I was like, oh no, like I've got to get to Southside, and so I am excited to be here with you guys today. And before I go any further, I just want to take a minute and, uh, you know, Mike and I have become really close friends over the years, but I'm telling you, there is something special about Mike and his leadership. I hope you guys can see it. Like I've traveled all over the world. Uh, I've been in lots of different churches all through the United States with Joe Sangle. I've been into churches in Canada on the other side of Canada. I've been in a large church helping them with a building program. I've been in uh, Central America, Costa Rica, Honduras. I've been into South Africa. I've been around the equator in Africa in a little country called Burundi. I've been over in Egypt where um, it was crazy what happened in the revolution in Egypt where people were fighting over religion and people went into Christian churches and burned them to the ground. There's churches in Egypt today that people are going to worship at. There's guys with guns underneath their robes trying to protect the place of a church so that people can come and hear the message of Jesus. I've been in parts of Eastern Europe in this little country called Serbia and in Eastern uh, Europe, it's, it's a dark, cold place, not because it's really kind of a dark, cold place, literally, 
but there, it's a place where people aren't talking about God. There's no conversation, a spiritual conversation going on about God. And I've been in all these different countries, planning churches, working with church leaders. And I'll tell you what, when I come here to Southside Church in British Columbia, Canada, um, there is no better leader than I've met than your pastor, Mike. And the Southside staff who care and love for you each and every week, they're absolutely amazing. And I hope that you guys love them as much as I love them. Can we just give them a, a round of celebration? Just praise them. Thanks. Thank you, staff and Mike, for leading in such an awesome way. Um, it really is a great place. And hey, now I get to be here in this series, Becoming Human, and it's been a powerful series. I don't know if you guys have checked in every single week, but the first week was this girl named Maddie. And when I got here this morning, I walked up on stage and Maddie was standing up here and she goes, hi, my name's Maddie. And I'm like, I know who you are. You're awesome. Like God's done something really cool in your life. And I can't believe I got to hear this story and share parts of it. It was absolutely amazing. And so if you came and you're like, is God really real? Does God do big things? Is God performing miracles in the world today? Is he really present? You don't have to go any farther than Maddie Hardy's story. It's an awesome, amazing story. And then last week, this young guy gets up on stage, Lucas Manis. And so I've known Mike for five years. I come uh, and visit Mike. Um, every couple of years, I get to be on site and spend some time with Mike. And every time we're talking, whether it's on the phone or whether it's in person, he's been telling me about Lucas. He's like, I've got this son. He plays basketball. He's amazing. He can hit every shot, basically three point, two point layup. Like he can probably dunk too. I didn't ask him, but he can probably dunk. And, and he keeps telling me about Lucas, but I've never actually seen Lucas. And for a while I was like, Mike, is this like, is this real? Is Lucas a real person? And last week I got to see him take the stage and hear his story right? That there are seasons in life where it's okay to not be okay. And there are seasons of life where, where on the outside, we might be trying to show everybody that everything's okay. But on the inside of us, something's drastically wrong and we're struggling. We're discouraged. We're depressed. We're losing hope in life. And when we think that nobody else can see it, God sees it. And he knows exactly where we're at and he cares where we're at. And God speaks to us and how God spoke to Lucas and called him into a clear purpose for his life, that God has a plan, that he has a purpose for what Lucas is supposed to do was absolutely powerful. God exists. He's real. He cares about you. And we get to hear these stories from from Lucas and Maddie, and we get to begin to insert ourselves in pieces of their story, like cancer. Like almost everybody in this room has probably been impacted by cancer in some shape or form, whether it's no one Maddie or someone else in your life or having someone that's been affected by cancer. Like we've been impacted by cancer in some way and to hear Maddie's story is absolutely amazing in the same way with Lucas. And so as I was thinking about that story, I, I kind of thought about like life is a journey. Like there are these mountaintop experiences and there are these valley experiences in life. There are these moments in life where things seem under control, like everything's good. And then there are these moments in life where things seem a little bit out of control. And it reminded me of the story of this young, uh, sweet couple that started dating. Their name uh, is Cody and Abby. And uh, Cody, he, like he'd been checking out Abby for a while and they're hanging out. And he was like, man, I just wanna take the next step with Abby. I wanna make her my girl. Like she is awesome. I love everything about her. And, um, and Abby was just playing it cool. She's laying low. And then one day Abby said to Cody, he said, hey, Cody, like you think you could come over to my house for dinner tonight? And Cody's like, heck yeah, I can. I'll be there. What time? You know, what do I need to wear? And so Cody runs away from that invite and he's so excited. And he's like, I got to bring a gift. I got to take something to Abby. And he runs downtown to the candy store and he goes in and he tells the shop manager, he said, hey, I need three boxes of chocolate. And the manager goes, three boxes? And he's like, yeah, I need a small box. Do you have a small box of chocolate? And he's like, yeah, here's, here's a small box. And he goes, now what, other, what else do you need? And, the, and Cody goes, I need a medium-sized box of chocolate. Something bigger than the first one you showed me, but not the biggest thing that you have. And the store manager's like, okay, here's a medium-sized box of chocolate. And then he goes, what else do you need? And he said, I need a largest box of chocolate that you have. 
And the store manager goes, this is interesting. So here's a large box of chocolate. And he said, now, what, this must be a special person if you're buying them three different size boxes of chocolate. And Cody goes, yeah, so here's the deal. I've been after this girl, Abby, and she invited me over to her house tonight for dinner. And so I got this small box of chocolate just for the invite. It's just to say, hey, thanks for having me over. And he's like, okay, I see, I see what you're doing there. What's the middle size box for? And he goes, well, the thing is after dinner, if we go hang out in the living room and Abby lets me hold her hand, like then I'm gonna give her the middle size box of chocolate. It's gonna be a special night. And he's like, okay, so what's the large box of chocolate for? And he goes, well, at the end of the night, if Abby gives me a kiss, he's like, she's gonna get the big box of chocolates. And so Cody grabs all three boxes of chocolates. He runs uh, over to Abby's house and knocks on the door. Abby answers it. She invites him to come in. They sit down at the dinner table. Now, like the uh, dining room, right, is an intimate place. It's a place where families gather, where there's community. You're breaking bread. You're sharing stories where the people that you care about, you invite around the table, right? And so Cody sits down and he uh, meets the parents and the dad looks across the table and says, hey, Cody, why don't you pray for dinner tonight? And Cody bows his head and he just delivers this amazing prayer. Like he goes on and on. God, thank you for everything. You're so good. You're so awesome. You're so powerful. Thank you for this food. Thank you for this beautiful house. Thank you for Abby and her family. Thank you. And he's just going on and on. And Abby's kind of looking out at him going, oh my gosh, I can't believe like he's got this amazing prayer. And so he gets done praying, says amen. They finish dinner. And Cody and Abby get up from the table and they go into the living room and Abby looks at Cody and she's just smiling. She's admiring him. She goes, Cody, I just didn't know that you could pray like that. And Cody looks at Abby and goes, Abby, I didn't know that your dad owned a candy store. <laughs> and so in a moment, Cody gets the invite from Abby he has a candy store moment, top of the mountain. Everything's awesome. I'm running down to the candy store. This is gonna be the best day of my life. And in another moment, just around the corner, he walks into Abby's house and he realizes that her dad is the candy store owner. And all of a sudden things are a little out of control and he might need a higher power to intervene <laughs> in the date that night. But isn't that really how life goes for us sometimes? Like we're on the mountaintop. A lot of times we're not talking to God. We're not asking God for anything. We're like, everything's under control. Everything feels good. And sometimes we even forget that God's around or God's involved in it or part of it in our lives. But then as soon as we start heading for the valley, as soon as we have the dinner table moments in life, we begin to look for God and say, God, things seem out of control. I, I, like, it's, it's not familiar to me. I don't know what to do with this. And we begin to say, hey, God, will you show up? Will you do something in my life? Will you do something supernatural? God, were you there? Are you present? Are you real? And as I was thinking about that, I thought about my own life. It's been like that. A mountaintop, valley, mountaintop, valley, candy store, dinner table, candy store, dinner table in life. And where I first remember it starting was when I uh, went to college. Um, I went to a Christian college in Ohio. I didn't really wanna go there. I, I was saved at a young age. I really, I knew the Lord. I believed that he was real, believed that Jesus died for me and rose again, but I wasn't really living a life for him. And I wanted to do my own thing and I wanted to do it my way. And I didn't want God or anybody else to tell me what to do. And so my parents really forced me to go to this Christian school and, and I show up and like they had rules upon rules. Like, you know, you had to wear khakis and you had to have a collared shirt and hair couldn't be on your collar, no earrings, no tattoos and all these rules. And I'm like, I'm gonna take every rule on the list. I'm gonna break every rule that's out there and not get caught, watch me do it. And so I did, like, I was like, I'm, I'm a one and done guy. I'm gonna be here one year and I'm gonna transfer to the college that I wanna go to. Well. That winter, I met this really pretty blonde-haired, blonde-eyed girl named Tara, who's with me today. And Tara and I began to hang out and it was a little bit like Cody and Abby. Like I thought she was pretty special and I was like, I wanted to be around her every minute that I could. And, and we go get pizza and we would hang out and uh, we go out to this reservoir area that had this really pretty lake and, and we would joke and laugh. And one night we were hanging out near the lake and uh, Tara said something that was really funny and I just was admiring who she was. She's just a beautiful person. And I was like, I love you. And I was like, oops. And she looked at me and then she looked down and she didn't say anything. 
And I was like, guys, like be with me for a little bit here. Like you're in trouble if you say I love you and a girl doesn't respond back. And I was like, oh, this isn't gonna end well for me. And so a few minutes go by and Tara looks at me and she goes, George, you're so much fun to hang out with. I think we could have a future together. And she goes, I think I could love you, but the thing that concerns me the most about you is you're not a spiritual leader. And for the first time in my life, she called out something to me that nobody else called out. Like I could go through life and do the things that I wanted to do and nobody would really say anything, but Tara looked at me and said, hey, if we are gonna be together, there has to be the higher priority in your life. You have to have your priorities straight. Get those straight and then we can talk about us. And so I went and worked on me and God, got my relationship right with God. And eventually that turned into a great relationship with my wife. And a year later, we were engaged. And about six months after that, we were married. And we got married between our sophomore and junior year in college. And it was awesome. Like, I was like, I got my girl. This is uh, great. I don't have to worry about the rest of life. This is gonna be a lot of fun. And a year after we were married, she hands me an anniversary gift. And I open up the box. I'm all excited to see what it is. And she's really thoughtful in her gifts. And it's this little plastic stick. And I'm like, what is this? And I flipped it over. And it was an early pregnancy test. I was like, oh man, we're gonna have a baby and uh, life, can it get any better? And so, you know, nine months later, the baby comes, we have this beautiful little girl, Danny, um, brown eyed, blonde hair. And like, honestly, like we're on the mountaintop, we're at the candy store, life is so good and going so well. A Couple months later, I graduate from college and right after that, I noticed that I hadn't been feeling super well. Like I, I noticed I was a little bit more tired than usual, fatigued. And I'd sit down and fall asleep or get in the car and we'd ride somewhere and I'd go to sleep. And I noticed that in the mornings when I woke up, like uh, my, my sheets were wet. Like kind of like when you have a fever at night and that fever breaks and, and, um, and your sheets are kind of soaked from it. But every night mine was that way. And I was like, I'm not running a fever. I don't understand why I'm getting clammy at night. Maybe we need to adjust the temperature in the room. And kind of going through all those things. Then I noticed my skin started getting really sensitive. Like I, I it would be sore to the touch. If somebody brushed up against me or touched me, um, it would hurt. And I was like, something's not right. And so I went to the doctor and, uh, and I said, hey, I got these symptoms. I don't know what's going on. He said, yeah, those aren't normal. And uh, he said, you know, let's do some tests. He said, yeah, there's some ab abnormalities. We're going to send you to a specialist, check some things out. And, um, and so I went to the specialist and he did some tests like specialists do. They run all these tests and he came back to me and he said, hey, you know, we do think there might be a problem and we're gonna do some exploratory surgery. When we get inside there, if there's anything wrong, we'll hopefully address it, take care of it. But you know, like, I don't think it's gonna be a big deal. Like nothing to really worry about at all. And so my wife and I, we head to the hospital for the day of the surgery. We got somebody to watch our kids and um, I go back for surgery and I wake up in the recovery room and there's an ice pack in my lap and uh, this nurse comes and she says, are you ready to go home? And I'm like, sure. And I'm trying to figure out what happened, like what, what's going on? And so she wheels me out to the car, I get in the car and I look at Tara and we, we get about two blocks away from the um, hospital. And I said, Tara, I was like, I'm guessing they removed something. And she was like, she pulled over the car and we had this white Honda Accord. And I'll never forget like her body, her skin color matched the color of the car, it just went completely white. And she started crying and she's like, George, like you, you have cancer. When they opened you up, they found cancer. They're not really sure how far it spread. The doctors are running more tests on, on the cancer to figure out what type of cancer it is and how severe it is. And in a moment, like I woke up that morning feeling like I'm still kind of on the mountaintop. I feel like I'm still having a candy store moment in life. But in a moment, I find myself in the valley. I find myself at the dinner table saying, cancer, how, like I'm 22 years old. I just had our first child. Like life has been really good, but all of a sudden life is really heavy. And what's gonna happen? And so over the next several weeks, we, the doctors would come to me and say, hey, um, what you have is testicular cancer. We did have surgery, we removed one of the testicles. And when we look at the test results, we see inside your lymph nodes and your groin area that there's a little bit of spread of cancer. So what we wanna do is we wanna cut you from your sternum to your groin. We wanna do a lymphectomy and remove all of your lymph nodes. If we can cut the lymph nodes out, there's no way for the cancer to spread in your body. Everything will be good. 
And I'm like, great, so tell me a little bit about the surgery. And they're like, we only do about two of them a year. It's about a six to eight hour surgery. It'll take six months to recover um, from the surgery because you're gonna lose all your stomach muscles. You probably, there's a good chance you won't be able to have children. It was a time when AIDS was still um, a pretty unknown thing in our culture. And they said, you're gonna have to have two blood transfusions during the surgery. And I was like, I think I want a second opinion. And so we started calling and asking around and we found out that the place that I grew up in Indiana, like 20 miles from there was the best clinic in the world at testicular cancer. And we started praying on a weekend and uh, we said, hey, we're gonna call on Monday and see if we could get an appointment. And I'm like, I, like how, what are the chances that we could just call and get an appointment at a place like this? We called on Monday and the lady on the end of the phone, I told her what was going on and she said, do you think you could be here on Friday? And I'm like, yes. And so we took up all of our test results. We go to this hospital, the, one of the best places for testicular cancer, and we hand them the slides, the pictures. And uh, I remember being in the basement of this hospital and a doctor comes in and he grabs the slides and he puts them up on the wall and we're sitting in the room and he's kind of outside and he starts walking down. He looks picture at picture at picture at picture. He comes in and says, Mr. Franco, what do you know? And so like, you know, like I studied WebMD, I'm like, yeah, I, like here's what's going on. Like I got a little bit of cancer, you know, lymphectomy, you know, six months, everything's cool, right? And he looked at me and he said, you know, uh, a lot of doctors, you know, don't know exactly what they're looking at. We deal with it every day, hundreds of cases a week. And he said, we're really the best at this. When I look at these pictures, you have a moderate to large spread of cancer through your entire body. I see, it, I see it in your belly, I see it in your lungs. Um, we don't know if it's made it to your brain. We need to get you in for a CAT scan today to see if you have cancer in your brain. Right now, I'm gonna diagnose you with stage four testicular cancer. And uh, we need to start you on chemotherapy immediately. We're not gonna do surgery. We're gonna go with radical, heavy dosage of chemotherapy. And we think if we can punch it hard enough that it'll, it'll go away. And um, he said, we wanna start you today. I said, today, like I need a little bit of time to process. And he said, okay, we'll give you the weekend, but we need to start on Monday. We don't wanna waste any time on it. So Monday rolls around and we check into the hospital and they start giving me this cocktail. It's one of the heaviest, hardest cocktails for cancer treatment for testicular cancer. They go after it really hard. For every 20 hours, for five days straight, they give you this cocktail. The minute they inject it into your vein, almost instantaneously, the taste in your mouth goes to metallic. Like water doesn't taste the same, food doesn't taste the same. You don't feel bad right away necessarily, but all of a sudden by the end of the day, you start to feel tired and fatigued. By the next day, you begin to feel nauseous and sick to your stomach. The next day you begin throwing up. The next day after that you throw up. And it's not the throw up like when you have an upset stomach and you're like, hey, I just, you know, I just need to get this out and over with. It's like you throw up and you still feel sick again. It's constant nausea and sickness. And I do that for five days. And then for three or four days after that, you still didn't feel well, you didn't eat much. You lost a lot of weight. I lost my hair um, and my skin color changed. Everything about my body was changing. And then I get a couple of weeks off and then go back after it again. And then the third round came. And at the end of the third round, a doctor walked into my hospital room and he said, hey, we just got the CAT scans back and guess what? The chemotherapy did exactly what we thought it was gonna do. Your body is completely clean of cancer. There's nothing left. And there's this moment where on the roller coaster ride, if you've ever read the Psalms, where David talks about like death was at my door and God rescued me. And then death was at my door and God rescued me. And death was at my door and God rescued me. That was the moment that I had in that hospital room. I'm like, death was at my door and God, you rescued me. And we were back on top of the mountain. It was a mountaintop moment. We were at the candy store. Everything was good in life. In fact, in the days to come, I would go and interview for a job at a really reputable company with a really great position. I didn't think anybody would hire a bald, skinny, pale guy who just got through cancer treatment, but God had a bigger plan, a bigger purpose for my life. And he arranged things for me to get this great paying job to provide and care for my family. So I'm like, I got this amazing job, even though that I had cancer and all this treatment. And a year after my last chemotherapy treatment, my wife came to me with a little box and handed me another early pregnancy test and said, we're pregnant with our son. And what's so amazing about that is on my last treatment, the doctors looked at us and said, hey, look, for the next year, you're completely sterile. There's no way that you could ever have kids. And maybe after that, the chances of having children are 50-50. But one year later, God had blessed us with a, a soon-to-be-born little baby boy. 
and we were on the mountaintop. Everything was good. Um, we bought our first house. Like we found this really great church in our community that we were really a part of. And, and God was growing that community and using our gifts and talents to be part of that community. Mountaintop experience, everything was great. And one day I come home from work and it had been a long week. I was definitely tired. It was a season where I was a little bit tired in life, but I walked in the door and I looked at my wife. She's making dinner and she said, hey, dinner will be ready in just a few minutes. And I said, I'm really, I'm really not feeling well. And she was like, yeah. She goes, it's been a long week. You're just tired. She goes, get some food and you'll feel better in a little bit. And I dropped down to my knees and I sat there on the floor and I said, something's not right. And I began to feel my heart rate elevate and it started pounding in my chest. And I was like, maybe I'm having a heart attack. It felt like my heart was gonna explode. And then all of a sudden my hands turned sweaty and clammy and sweat broke out on my forehead. And I said, hey, something's not, something's not right. Something's wrong. Maybe, maybe there's cancer in my brain. Maybe they missed something. Maybe it's back. I, I don't know, but like, I think you better get me to the hospital. And so she got a neighbor to come watch our kids and she throws me in the car. We run to the hospital and they did what hospitals do. The doctor said, hey, based upon your, your past history, we, we need to do full testing. And so they ran all kinds of tests and they observed me for a while and the doctors went away. And uh, finally they knocked on the door and they came in the room to deliver the bad news. And they said, you know, Mr. Franco, we've gone through everything extensively, blood work, x-rays, CAT scans. Um, we've looked at everything. We've observed you for a while. And, you know, based on your history, we want to make sure that we get this right. And I'm like, yeah. I said, go ahead. Come on. You know, it's coming. Give it to me. And they said, yeah, um, based upon everything, you're a perfectly healthy um, male in his 20s, except tonight you had a panic attack. And I said, a What? And he was like, a panic attack. And I'm like, you mean the thing like anxiety and worry type thing? And he was like, yeah. And I said, I don't have any of that. And he was like, well, that's what you had, a panic attack. It makes your heart feel like it's gonna explode and you feel like you're having a heart attack. And they happen all the time. We have people come in here all the time. And I'm like, that's not me, doc. Like I, I can just tell my mind to say, hey, stop worrying about that. Don't worry about it. It stops worrying and I don't panic. And he was like, well, you had a panic attack tonight. And he said, go home, maybe, maybe everything will be fine. But he said, try not to worry about stuff. And I'm like, okay. And so I went home and I was like, I don't worry, I don't worry, I don't worry, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry. And then a day later, I had another panic attack. And I was like, no, they missed something, right? Because like I had stage four cancer. I didn't even know it. Like I was 22 years old and I had stage four cancer. Like there's something wrong. It's in my brain. It's in my back. It's in my sinus cavity. I don't know. It's in my knee. I like, God, there's something wrong with me. And I'm going to find the doctor who's going to figure it out. And so I started going to my family doctor. And it was like every Monday and Friday I had an appointment. I think they were getting tired of seeing me come into the clinic because like I got through the weekend and I figured out what I had after my research and my thoughts, um, rationalizing what it could be. And so on Monday, he would tell me, hey, everything's good. Everything's normal. He would run all kinds of tests. Anything that I'd ask him to do, he would do for me because he wanted to give me confidence that everything was okay with my body. By the time I got to Friday, I had figured out something else that was wrong with my body. And I said, hey, doc, I'm sure it's this. And I wanted to get it taken care of before the weekend because on the weekend, the doctor's offices are closed. And he was like, after weeks of this regimen, he said, hey, George, look, like you, you have anxiety. Like there's something, like you've been through a traumatic event in life and you're worried and you're beginning to rationalize things in your mind, what's wrong? My wife calls it awfulize. Like you weren't rationalizing, you were awfulizing. Like fear inside of us is this um, threat. It's a known threat is uh, the definition of fear. And so like if you're walking by a yard that has a fence and there's this dog in there and he's growling at you, barking, foaming at the mouth, that dog is dangerous. If you step inside the pen, you probably will get bit by that dog, right? That's a healthy fear. There's a known to it that dogs bite, especially when they're aggressive. But anxiety is an unknown or unclear threat to us where we begin to take things and insert what we believe to be true, but not what we know is actually true. And so in my mind, I was beginning to take things, little symptoms and say, it's gotta be something bigger. And my mind would keep building on that, building on that, building on that until I worried, 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 and my body would explode in this fear. Even though I could say, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry. I worried, 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 and it got worse and worse and worse. It began to control my life. And so 
as things got worse with me, I began to try and control more things around me. It's like, I, I can't control the panic attack, but maybe I can if I control my schedule, if I control where I go, what I do, what I eat. And, uh, and so like panic attacks often happen to me in restaurants. We would go to a restaurant and it'd be a loud, noisy place. I'd be okay for about 10 or 15 minutes and about partway through dinner, all of a sudden everything would mount inside of me and I couldn't stop it. As much as I wanted to stop it, I couldn't stop it. And I would start to do this. I'd start to rub the back of my neck. And as I would start to do that, Tara would look at me and she'd go, oh my gosh, it's getting ready to happen. And she'd go, uh, waitress, check, please. And she would load up the kids and rush them to the car and she'd grab me and she said, are, are you okay? And she'd take me home and try and care for me and help me through those anxious moments along the way. It began uh, to limit what I could do. And so one day Tara came to me and she said, she goes, I know, I know you don't like changing schedule. Like, like, cause I was very regimented about everything. Cause I figured if I could control it, then the panic wouldn't control me. And so she said to me, she said, Hey, I know like you don't like a lot of adjustments, but I need to run down to the store five minutes away, five minutes back. Like no big deal. Can you watch the kids for just a few minutes? I'll be right back. I promise I'll make it as quick as I possibly can. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm good. I'm good. And so she leaves and she comes back to the house. The kids are on the couch watching television. She goes, hey, where's dad? And the kids are like, ah, we don't know. We haven't seen him for a little bit. And so she goes running through the house trying to figure out where I'm at, if I'm okay. And she comes back to our bedroom and I was curled up in the fetal position in the corner of the bedroom with a blanket over my head and a full blown panic attack. I couldn't stop my heart from racing. I couldn't stop my worry or anxiety. I kept saying, I'm okay, I'm okay, okay. There's nothing wrong with my body. I'm perfectly healthy, I'm perfectly healthy. I wanted to believe that everything was gonna be okay, but I, couldn't, I didn't feel like I was in control of anything. And when I didn't feel like I was in control of anything, everything began to control me. And I, I was in a really bad spot. And it was in that season that I finally went to my doctor and I said, look, I don't, I don't know what else to do. And he said, here's what I think we should do. I think we should start you on some medication to try and help ease some of those panic attacks. We need to get you to Christian counseling, right? So a counselor can help you sort out some of those irrational fears, those unknowns that you're creating uh, mental pictures of knowns for. We, we need to help sort those things out so that you can really begin to have confidence in your body and what your body's actually telling you. And then I was in this really great church community of people who cared and loved for me. And it's in that season that I began to feel like God was saying to me that your big issue is trust. Like you're not trusting me. Like in the middle of this, you're saying it, but it's, it's hard for you to do. I get that it's hard for you to do, but you're not really trusting and acknowledging that even though you're not in control, I am in control. Like give that up to me. And so over that season, I began to really trust God. I'm like, God, you are the God that brought me through stage four cancer. You are the God that delivered a boy to us. When everyone said it's not possible for you to have children, you gave us a child. And I said, God, your past performance is absolutely a predictor of your future performance in my life. It's not like the stock market that says, hey, when you invest in this financial instrument along the way, that there's no guarantee of what it's done in the past is gonna happen in the future. God, you actually, what you've done in the past is a predictor of the things that you can do today and the things that you will do tomorrow in my life. And I'm going to trust in you. And in the moments where my life is out of control, I'm gonna trust that you are in control of all things, that you see all things, know all things can do all things. And so over time, years, God has done this amazing work where he's, he's allowed me to fully release that anxiety. Like I still get anxious moments. I still get concerned from time to time, but I don't let it build to this great uh, worry in my life where I have these panic attacks where it controls me and what I do because I know that God's in control. So we're back on the mountaintop, everything's good. And uh, we're having those candy store moments, much like Cody did. And a few years after that, I got a phone call from my dad and my dad said, hey, I got some news to share with you. I was at the doctor's office today and they say that I have prostate cancer. And I was like, okay, valley moment. 
This is my dad. My dad and I were close. We did a lot of stuff together. My dad owned a business. He was an entrepreneur. And from the early age of about eight years old, I grew up with my dad and we worked on trucks and tractors together. And he called me his backup man. And so if anything went wrong, I was the guy in charge, so to speak, even when I was little, all the way up till I was older, my dad could always count on me. That's what he believed. And it's what I believe. Like, I love you, dad. I love spending time with you. And so over the next several years, dad would go through multiple treatments. He went through the seed implant where they put radioactive seeds into your prostate. And it's supposed to basically eliminate or eradicate uh, the cancer. And it worked for a couple of years, but then all of a sudden his blood markers started going back up. And so the doctor said, now we're a little bit more limited. What we can do, we're gonna do a cryosurgery. And so they froze the prostate and that's supposed to kill the cancer. And it worked for a couple of years. And all of a sudden his markers started going back up. And then the doctor said, well, we're really limited to what we can do now. The only thing left is hormone therapy. And so they began injecting my dad with hormones, with estrogen. And uh, prostate cancer lives on this testosterone that's in males. So my dad had to take this estrogen, which was a painful season for him. I mean, he experienced all the things uh, that some women experience, especially during pregnancy or menopause, with hot flashes and mood swings and, and just not feeling himself all the time. And it worked for a couple of years and then his markers started going back up. And so the doctor said to my dad, he said, hey, we know the cancer's in there somewhere. It's not in, it's not in the prostate because it's dead. We've killed it multiple times now. And it's in your body somewhere. One day it's going to metastasize. And when it does, when it shows itself, we'll have a chance to go in and cut it out. And maybe that'll be the spot we can eradicate cancer from your body. And so a couple of years go by. And on January of 2010, I was asleep at night in my home in North Carolina. My parents lived in Indiana. And um, I, got, I had this dream. And it was a picture of my mom and my dad. They were in this room. And my uh, mom was talking to this lady. And this lady said, your boys really love their, or your boys really like their dad. And my, my mom just kind of smiled and looked at the lady and goes, no, my boys love their dad. And right at that moment, my cell phone rang and I sat up, it was 5.30 in the morning. And I said, oh my gosh, something's wrong with my dad. I answered the phone, it was my mom. My mom said, hey, there's something wrong with your dad. He's laying on the floor, he can't move. You see, the night before my dad was fine. He, he walked into his bedroom, climbed into bed. He woke up in the morning needing to use the bathroom. And when he stepped out, his legs didn't work. Overnight, a tumor had metastasized to his spinal cord that choked off his spinal cord and he had no movement from his waist down. I said, mom, hang up the phone, call 911. I'm hopping a plane. I'll be there as fast as I can. And so I land in Indianapolis and I call my mom and I said, where are you at? And she said, we're at IU Medical Center, which is the same clinic that I was treated at for testicular cancer. I go running into his hospital room, not sure what I would see. And there's my dad laying in the bed. And on the other side of the bed is the same doctor who treated me for testicular cancer. The doctor looked at me and said, hey, I know you. And I'm like, yeah, like we, we spent a lot of time together. And he said, hey, your dad's gonna be fine. Like he said, you remember there's this surgeon. He's one of the most renowned surgeons in our area. And he's actually on call tonight. He's gonna do the surgery. We're gonna get that tumor and, and we'll see what uh, is gonna happen after that. And I'm like, great. And so dad went through surgery and they removed the tumor and he got use of his legs again. But over the next several months, the cancer would still continue to grow in other parts of his body and they couldn't stop it. They couldn't do radiation. It wasn't specific enough that they could help. Chemotherapy wouldn't help this type of cancer. And eventually my dad passed away. And I got to be with him during that whole journey. There'd been no cancer in my entire family. I was the very first one to have cancer. And I remember my dad sitting at the end of my hospital bed saying, son, I wish I could have the cancer. I wish I could take this away. No dad should have to bury his son. And I want the cancer for you. Little did I know that God was preparing me to go on a journey with my dad through cancer. And that I got to walk with him all the way to the end of this life and see him go into the next life. And so, uh, a few days later, we flew his body up to Indiana and we buried him close to our family farm. And you can stand at the graveside and you can see the place where I grew up, his farm, a place that he spent all of his time where we spent time together as father and son. And um, weeks later, we gathered all the possessions and we put them into a personal property auction. And it's really something about accumulating stuff in life. We work so hard to get some stuff. 
My dad spent 70 years of his life trying to earn money and provide for us and, and accumulating stuff. And literally in less than a day, everything that he owned was sold and it was sold for a fraction of what he bought it for. And so uh, a couple months later, we got the house and all the buildings, his shop ready to sell. And I told my wife, I said, I'm gonna fly up to Indiana. I wanna spend a little bit of time just going around. This is where I grew up. This is where I spent time with my dad. And I just really wanna celebrate his life. And so I got to the farm. It was the fall in Indiana. All the crops had been harvested. It was just a beautiful, gorgeous day. The sun was setting in the background. And I walked up to the house, an 1800s farmhouse. And I opened the door and I stepped in and I went into every single room. There wasn't a room that I didn't go in. I went into all the bathrooms. I went into the kitchen. I went into the front porch, the back porch, the basement. Um, I walked into my dad's bedroom, the closets. And I even walked into the living room where as a little boy, I knelt and asked my mom, I said, mom, I don't know how to know Jesus. Can you help me with that? And she prayed with me to invite Jesus to be the leader of my life. And I left the house and I walked to the barn. I went through the barn. I went to the chicken coop. Like the chicken coops aren't the cool places to go, but I went to the chicken coop and I went to the garage and, and I just remembered all those things uh, that had happened growing up on the farm. I, I remember not only where I got saved, but I remember getting in trouble and my dad chasing me around the farm trying to catch me before. I thought I could outrun him and I could beat him, but little did I think through that I would have to return to the house at some point where my dad was standing there waiting for me. I remember crashing the truck in or crashing a tractor into one of our trucks and denning it up and going, I'm gonna be in really big trouble for that one. And I remember my dad saying, hey, it's okay. It happens, this is how we learn. And I had all these great memories and I walked over every acre of land. I, I walked through the creek. I walked where our apple orchard used to be. I, I walked every part, the fence lines and I came around to the last place on the property was his shop. It was the place where he made money. It was the place where we had spent a significant amount of time together because I was his backup man. And the thing that you need to know about my dad, when I started working with him when I was a little boy, I realized that I could get out of doing some work if I'd look at dad and say, hey dad, do you wanna take a Pepsi break? And dad's like, my dad loved Pepsi. He's a Pepsi guy, not a Coke guy at all. And he was like, yeah, I think I got a cold Pepsi in the refrigerator. And I knew that my dad loved Pepsi, but what I didn't really realize at those early stages that my dad loved Pepsi and he loved me. And so every time I would ask him for a Pepsi break, it was our time to spend together. And we would sit down and we'd crack open a Pepsi and he would laugh and tell me stories. And it was a special time for us. And that special time continued all the way through middle school, high school, into college, into my married life. When I had children, I introduced my children to a Pepsi break and they would go to grandpa all the time. Grandpa, can we have a Pepsi break? And he'd run over to the fridge and he'd open the fridge and he'd reach in and he's like, here's a cold one. And he'd sit down and have those same special moments with my kids kids that he had had with me growing up. And so when I got to the shop, it was kind of a heavy moment. I was beginning to remember those special times together and I opened the office door and I walked in and this is the place that my dad and I built together and it was completely empty and I remembered where the desk was and how bad his filing system was and how cluttered this area over here was. And I walked through it and I'm like, God, thank you so much for a dad who cared for me and loved me and provided for me. And I got through the office and I opened the shop door and this was a place where there were all kinds of tools and equipment growing up and there were tractors and trucks and we worked on stuff together. There was a bay where I'd always pull my truck or my car into and I'd say, dad, I need new brakes or I need a new clutch or I, I need to replace the plugs or the wires. I, dad, like, and he would break out his tools and we would sit and we would work on my cars together and we would talk about life and he would share things with me and I would share things with him. And it was a special bonding place for us. And now the place was totally empty. I remembered it was the place when it was storming outside that my dad would bring my kids and his grandkids and he would let them run around and play in there. And it was just a special time where he would laugh and giggle. And it was just the most amazing special moment to step into that shop and have those memories flood over me. But today there was nothing there. It was completely bare. And as I scanned the shop for anything that reminded me of my dad, there was nothing I could see until I turned the corner. There was one thing left in the entire building. And sitting right in the middle of the floor was one single Pepsi can, not crushed or flattened, standing on end. And when I saw it, God said to me, George, your dad is just on a Pepsi break. You're gonna see him soon. And I realized that I'm not in control. Like, 
I couldn't have planned in my wildest dreams that this valley moment where I had cancer in my life, stage four cancer, would lead to a moment where I got to spend time with my dad, care for my dad, love my dad, and some of the hardest moments of life. And that God would use the same doctors, the same hospitals, that he would work in amazing ways. And that the moment where I'm grieving and trying to find joy in a moment that seems so heavy, that God would put the one thing that meant so much to me and my dad in the floor and say, George, I got it. I'm in control. I'm working all things together for the good of those who believe in me and are called according to my purpose. I see all things. I know all things. I, God, can do all things. And it reminded me of this passage in scripture in Philippians, Philippians 4, 6. And I wanna leave you guys with this because a season of my life was filled with worry and anxiety where I wanted to be in control. But the guy who wrote this passage actually had been chased around the world by assassins. He'd been beaten and left for dead. People hated him. He was actually arrested, thrown in prison at the time that he wrote this. He didn't know what the outcome of his life was gonna be. If anybody had a reason to worry or to be anxious, it would have been the apostle Paul. And he wrote this, it says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Be anxious for nothing. I like to take that nothing and split it between the O and the T. Be anxious for no thing. Whatever it is that you're worried about, whatever it is that you're trying to control and hold on to, we think it's something. I thought it was something. I, do, I still do it some days. But what God's saying is your something is really nothing. I've got it. I see it. I know it. I can do anything. Trust me, I'm in control. And so no matter where you're at today, you might be in the candy store moment, that's awesome. Candy store moments, mountaintop moments are absolutely amazing. But maybe you're headed towards the valley. Maybe you're in the valley right now. And if you're trying to hold on with everything that you can, if you're trying to control all the outcomes, just back off and say, God, you know what? I'm not in control. I trust you. You love me, you care for me, and you can do all things. And I know you're working a plan together for my good. Let me pray for us. God, thank you so much for how you work in our lives. Lord, I, I just have to admit, there's so many times where I don't understand, I don't see it, I can't comprehend it. And I tried to maneuver the outcomes. I put a lot of energy and a lot of effort into making it turn out the way that I want it to turn out. But Lord, I've always found that when I just sit back and I trust who you are and I give up control, which I don't really have control of anyway, I just think I do. And I say, God, I'm gonna give it to you. I'm gonna trust you. I know that you love me and care for me. I know that you have a plan and purpose for me. And I'm gonna trust that your past performance is a predictor of what you're gonna do today and tomorrow in my life and the lives of people around me. I love you and I give it to you. God, I pray that you would bless this church wherever they're at in that journey. Lord, that they would be a light and a source of hope to other people who are going through the valleys of life right now. And God, that you would move and do the things that only you can do. God, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, yeah. That's awesome. <clears throat> hey, I, I really hope that this series has been a blessing to you in so many ways. I hope this message today has impacted you in some way. And if it has, I just wanna invite you to come back. Your next step is to come back next week and stay engaged with this series, Becoming Human. You're not gonna wanna miss what next week brings, all right? Hope you guys have an amazing week. I love you guys. Can't wait to see you again soon here at Southside. Thanks for joining us. We'd love to see you at any of our three Sunday services held at Sardis Secondary School on Stevenson Road in Chilliwack, British Columbia. For more information, please visit southsidelife.com.